Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. My guest today is Julia Gillard, a distinguished fellow with the Center for Universal Education at Brookings and chair of the Global Partnership for Education. Ms. Gillard served as the 27th Prime Minister of Australia from 2010 to 2013. In her roles as Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, she developed Australia's guiding policy paper, Australia in the Asian Century, and delivered nation-changing policies, including reforming Australian education at every level, from early childhood to university. Ms. Gillard is the first woman to ever serve as Australia's Prime Minister or Deputy Prime Minister. She recently authored the book, My Story, about her time as Australia's first female Prime Minister. Welcome to the show, Ms. Gillard. Thank you. Good to be here. It's, it's quite an honor to have uh, the head of a government on the show. That's certainly a first for us. Uh, but that's kind of Brookings for you, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's kind of Brookings, and it's great for me, uh, being in my time uh, post being Prime Minister, to have the opportunity to make a contribution here in the Centre for Universal Education. Terrific. When you were when you were younger, did you think that you might be Prime Minister one day? No, I didn't. I wasn't the kindergarten child, the you know four or five year old who was running around saying I want to be Prime Minister. I was not that kid. Uh, I you know went through school. I'm from a very uh, ordinary background where migrants to Australia. My father was a psychiatric nurse. My mother uh, was a cook in an aged care facility. And so when I was at school, I thought I'd like to be a teacher. Uh, Very late in my schooling career, I decided on law. And it was when I was at university, which I thought was an amazing thing to get to do, to go to university. But when I was there, there were some big government cutbacks to university funding, and I got involved in a campaign against them. And the rest, as they say, is history. It was that that really started me on the journey into politics. You gave a remarkable speech in Parliament in uh, October 2012. Uh, it was on uh, women in professional and public life. It's, I, I watched the video earlier, and um, it's quite striking. But after that speech, I mean, before it, but that, in that speech, you became a role model for young women around the world. Did you know that that speech was going to get so much attention? No, I didn't. I mean, that speech was given in a very particular parliamentary context in Australia. We have a very feisty parliament. We have the Westminster system, but we seem to have made it uniquely our own, and it's quite um, aggressive, quite combative. And I didn't know that I would even be required to give a speech that day until, you know, sort of 20 minutes before when the Leader of the Opposition moved a motion for debate. He gave the first speech. I listened to his speech and as he was giving it, I was writing down the scrawly handwritten notes uh, to give the speech that you've seen on YouTube. Uh, And whilst I knew in the delivery that it was a hard-hitting speech, I could see the dynamics of the Parliament change around me as I gave it. I didn't have any sense that it was going to speak so loudly beyond the Parliament. Let's uh, let's shift to uh, something that's uh, let's just pass this by. International Women's Day was March eighth. What advice do you have for young women who are following in your footsteps, uh, either in your home country or globally? who want to be in politics um, or other leadership roles. I mean, what does it take to be a, a woman leader in contemporary politics these days? Well, I certainly say go for it, uh, even though uh, I think it is still harder for women than for men that in our politics, Australian politics, US politics, politics around the globe, there are still gender factors at work. 
Uh, despite all of that, uh, the benefits of getting to be a decision maker for your nation to enact policies that you care about deeply, uh, those benefits outweigh any negatives that politics has and that politics particularly has for women. But I would say very clearly there's no point going into politics unless you know precisely why you were doing it, what the sense of purpose is that's driving you. Uh, politics, you know, makes you a household name, but ultimately it's not about celebrity. If you want to be a celebrity, there's far easier ways of getting yourself on TV. Uh, you know, politics does sometimes bring you applause, but because, you know, politics can be divisive. It brings you cheers as, uh, you know, cheers and uh, sometimes boos. So if you're only interested in applause, politics isn't for you. Uh, what it's got to be about is purpose and knowing what your purpose is. Well, let's, uh, let's then shift to these questions, uh, this question of purpose, uh, and specifically the work you've done around the issue of education. You've been working uh, for a long time as prime minister, and now uh, with the Brookings Center for Universal Education and as chair of the Global Education, uh, the Global Partnership for Education on issues around equality and access to education worldwide. What motivates you in this work? Well, what motivates me is I understand just from my own life's journey what a transformative power education has. Uh, you know, my family, we migrated to Australia. My parents grew up in the United Kingdom, particularly in Wales, in South Wales. And both of them, for different reasons, didn't get a full and fair go at education. Uh, my mother, because she was quite unwell as a child. My father, because he was one of seven uh, in a coal mining family, in a coal mining village. And quite literally, as a teenager, his family couldn't afford to not have him working. So fast forward the clock, my parents migrate to Australia, my sister and I grow up there, and we got a great education in the local government schools. And I've been able throughout my life to look back and say, well, what if, you know, what if we hadn't migrated? What if the government school we went to at the end of the road wasn't a good school? What difference would it have made to my life? It certainly would have meant I couldn't have become Prime Minister. So it's literally true to say education made me. And if I can say that about my own life, then I think, you know, I feel honour bound to make sure that children right around our planet, the world that we share, get access to the same transformative power that is education. That's, that's very powerful. Uh, and it resonates, I'm sure, with, with all of us. And I'm the father of a, of a girl myself, and we, we stress that all the time. But uh, we're facing lots of challenges in terms of uh, access to education and quality of education around the world. Can you talk about some of those challenges and what your what your role is in addressing those? Yeah, we certainly still do face challenges. Uh, the Millennium Development Goal, the promise that the world gave to the children of the world in the year 2000 was that by the end of this year, 2015, that every child would have access to primary school. And we are 58 million children behind realising that goal. Now, a lot of progress has been made, so we shouldn't convince ourselves this is all hopeless and change isn't possible. Change has happened. But 
inevitably, when you do a big thing like start to get children into primary school around the world, the millions that remain are the millions that are hardest to reach. So about half of them are children in very fragile or conflict-affected places. Uh, millions of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and it is for these children that we have to make a difference to make sure that they too get an opportunity to go to school. And we are talking about the most basic level of education. And if you don't get to go to primary school, then there's no point talking about secondary school or university education or vocational education. And then there's a big quality challenge. So there are around the world 250 million children who are getting to sit in something that's called a school. Many of them actually go to that school for four years, but at the end of that four-year period can't do the most basic literacy or numeracy task. So we've got to be lifting the standard of education too because it's not about access and attendance alone. It's also about learning outcomes, what the kids actually get taught and what they master and what skills they therefore take with them for the rest of their lives. Lives. You used the word uh, transformative uh, earlier when talking about your family. How is education transformative for children uh, in these situations, in conflict zones, in poorer countries in the developing world? Well, education uh, remains the best path out of poverty, uh, both for people and for nations. And so if you look at the development statistics, uh, it's absolutely clear that if you want to make a difference to poverty eradication, if you want to make a difference to peace and stability, even to tolerance of people from other religions, then education makes that difference. Uh, so if we could deliver, as we promised, basic education at high quality to children around the world, we'd make a real dent on global poverty and we'd be setting up the countries from which those children come for success. And we've seen resistance to efforts to educate more children, especially girls. Uh, Malala is the epitome of that resistance. Why do you think there's so much resistance in some pockets of the world to especially girls' education? Well, if you educate a girl, you'll change her life and you'll change uh, the society in which she lives. Uh, educating girls is tremendously powerful. It means that that girl uh, will go on to earn more income in her life. She's very likely to marry later. She's li li likely to choose to have fewer children. Uh, she'll make a contribution to development in her own community. And given education is such a powerful change agent for girls, we should be investing in it. But unfortunately, the forces of darkness, the terrorists know that education is a powerful change agent too, and that is why they seek to deny its power to girls by the, the shootings that we've seen, including the shooting of Malala, the acts of direct violence, the kidnappings uh, in northern Nigeria and in other places, all of the things that are meant to send a message to, to girls, don't go to school, don't risk it, and we've got to be pushing hard in the other direction. What does the strategy look like then, maybe through um, the Global Partnership uh, or with the Centre for Universal Education here? What is the strategy for addressing that very critical problem? I think the strategy is about, you know, delivering access by making sure that there are schools to go to. Uh, and then working with communities to convince communities about the need for uh, girls' education and that their girls can be educated in safety. 
at the Global Partnership for Education, we've worked on this and we can claim some success, even in hard environments like Yemen and like Afghanistan. Uh, we can point to increased enrolments of girls. We can point to increasing numbers of female teachers, which then gets you on a virtuous circle uh, because if families see that there are female teachers in the school, then they're more likely to send their daughters. So change is possible. Uh, with my Brookings hat on, I've also had the delight of working with uh, Secretary Clinton on a major girls' education initiative called CHARGE, uh, which has now attracted around $800 million of commitments to make a difference for girls' education, uh, not only girls in basic education in primary school, but girls into lower secondary, girls in the transition points in their lives from primary to secondary, from secondary to the world of work, and supporting women leaders, because if we can keep supporting women who are leading in their own communities, then we'll keep changing attitudes. I've also seen that the, uh, the White House just announced an initiative called Let Girls Learn. Michelle Obama and the Peace Corps are partnering on, a, uh, on some kind of project. Can you speak to, to that? Well, I think uh, Rebecca Winthrop from Brookings, who leads the Centre for Universal Education, is owed a big thanks for the work that she's done uh, with the First Lady in talking about the design of this initiative, Let Girls Learn. Uh, I've had the pleasure of attending the launch and Brookings and the Global Partnership for Education will continue to be involved. Uh, this is an initiative uh, where the Peace Corps, which is so well known uh, to the people of America and around the world, which brings young, enthusiastic people into some very hard contexts, it will be dedicating the work of many of those Peace Corps volunteers towards girls' education. And even those volunteers who aren't working directly on girls' education will, as part of their training, uh, be told about, learn about the circumstances for girls in the nations that they're going to work in so that they can be spruiking the benefits of girls' education, even if they're there to work on an agricultural project or something quite different. Let's uh, go back to the Millennium Development Goals for just a moment and actually look beyond them. So they're designed to, I don't want to say expire, but they certain, meet certain targets by the, by the end of 2015. Um, 58 million uh, seems like a large target to, to meet by then. But what happens after 2015? What is the, the global community doing for girls' education, for boys' education around the world? Well, I think that that is the huge question of 2015, and we don't know the answer yet. The answer will be worked through at a series of international meetings that are still to come in 2015. Uh, the first really big one will be the uh, uh, World Education Forum in Korea. Uh, it will be followed by a major education summit in Norway, which the Norwegian Prime Minister uh, has called together and is hosting. Uh, that will then take us very quickly into the financing summit uh, in Addis Ababa, where the world will not only talk about the sustainable development goals, but the very practical question of where's the money coming from. And then leaders will meet in New York in September at the UN to finally shape and sculpt those goals. Uh, so it's a big year, a pivotal year for education. Uh, I would say two things about it. Um, one, as we leave the era of the Millennium Development Goals and go into the era of the Sustainable Development Goals, we can't 
just forget the MDGs. Uh, when they haven't been achieved, then anything we do in the Sustainable Development Goals has to be thought upon, thought about as adding to, not in replacement of. So we've got to keep building, uh, keep uh, working to achieve the MDGs. Uh, in education, what I think that means is that we should be looking to lift ambition beyond universal access to primary school to universal access to primary and some secondary schooling for boys and girls. Uh, and we should also have a quality measure about what's being achieved or a series of quality measures. Uh, one of the criticisms of the Millennium Development Goal, universal access to primary school, is that it's catalyzed work to get kids into school, that's good, but it hasn't catalyzed work on quality. So many of those children aren't learning. The new goal, I think, has to catalyze access and quality. Can you talk about the relationship between the, the global actors that we've talked about, the ones that participate in these global conferences, and the, the local actors, people on the ground who are actually delivering um, the curricula, if you will? It's certainly the model that the Global Partnership for Education works uh, is genuinely uh, a partnership. That word is in our title deliberately uh, and it is the most meaningful word in our title. Uh, what that means is that GPE is a partnership between uh, donor nations, civil society, the private sector and private philanthropy and 60 developing countries. So with those 60 developing countries, uh, we certainly don't have someone steamroll out of our Washington Secretariat and go into the country and say, I know exactly what you should be doing here to educate your children. Clearly that wouldn't work. It's a country-led model. Uh, the work of the Global Partnership for Education is the patient system strengthening piece, recognising that schooling is a whole system. There's no point having the buildings if you don't have the teachers. There's no point having the teachers if you don't support them and continually develop their schools skills. Uh, there's no point, uh, you know, putting teachers in front of a classroom if they don't have the instructional material to hand out to the children and on and on it goes. I mean, all of the things that we'd understand for schooling in our own countries, that it's got to be planned, otherwise it's not going to work. Uh, we assist these countries to do the planning, to make sure that the education sector plans they have are ones that not only have government endorsement, but the endorsement of everyone interested in education in that developing country. So we work through a local education group, government represented teachers, civil society, the other donors, the whole lot, to get the best possible approach to change within that nation. And what about non-state actors, the private sector? Do they have a role in global education? Well, clearly uh, in many developing countries, there are non-state actors. Uh, now, non-state actors sounds like a really clumsy terminology and perhaps some people listening to this would be puzzling. What do we mean? Uh, but you mislead a bit by simply saying government schools and private schools uh, because many of the non-government schools in developing countries are not profit-earning schools. They are schools run by charities, by churches, by non-government organisations, and they've set themselves the philanthropic mission of bringing education to some of the poorest and most at-risk children. So, you know, in those circumstances, I think we've got to be mindful of conditions in each country. Everywhere's different which is why you need a country-led model rather than bringing preconceived ideas about what will work and what won't. 
Do you, do you find that some developing nations, or, or any nation for that matter, have a tension in terms of financing for education versus financing for infrastructure versus financing for export and so on, and all these priorities? How do you convince them that education is perhaps the most important priority, if not one of their top? I think every nation on earth has that kind of competitive tension between areas of potential government spending. I mean, I know what it's like to sit round a government decision-making table, in our case, the cabinet of the Australian government, uh, and be trying to get uh, huge new resources for education whilst the Minister for Health is sitting there and she's got real needs and real views about how to expand the health system whilst the Minister for Infrastructure is there and he's got a list as long as your arm about very vitally needed infrastructure projects whilst the Minister for Defence is there and he's got capability acquisitions that he wants to make for defence. You know, the, these were my circumstances as I sat around my cabinet table with my ministers. Uh, so I know what it's like to try and make sure education holds its place and expands its place. Uh, the argument I would use to any government leader is the same argument I used around my own cabinet table, which is at the end of the day, if we want to set nations up for peaceful and prosperous futures, there's no better investment than education. And that is why, amongst all of the competing and noisy demands for government assistance in societies, education should be viewed as the top priority. Well, that, I'm going to leave it at that then. That was a terrific way to close. Uh, thank you, Ms. Gillard, for your time today and for all your work on this important issue. Thank you. If you have any questions for Ms. Gillard or any previous guests of the show, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. I also want to thank Alexandria Eisenhower for her assistance in helping me prepare for this interview. Thanks also to producer Zach Colzer, logo designer Jessica Pavone, and the web support we get from Eric Abalahan and Rebecca Weiser. You can listen to episodes on our website at brookings.edu bcp, on iTunes, and on Stitcher.